Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart, and this is Pastor Calvin Corbett with Hickory Ridge Community Church, and we are located in Chesapeake, Virginia. I am so thankful that you're listening today to the broadcast. This is part number two on the subject of forgiveness and why I should forgive. This is a great subject because I think that most of the problems that we have revolve around our inability to willingly forgive somebody else. And I want you to know that forgiveness is possible. I want to begin by sharing the story about our heart. Hummingbirds have a race car of a heart. You know, they eat oxygen at this eye-popping rate, and their hearts are built of thinner and leaner fibers than ours, and their arteries are stiffer and they're more taunt. Their heart is stripped to the skin for the war against gravity and, and inertia. And they have this mad search for food and, and they have this insane idea of flight. I mean, these tiny birds in their hearts beat 10 times a second. Unbelievable, right? 10 times a second. So even if you put your huge ear to its chest, it would be hard to discern the heart because it's going so fast. The price of this ambitious heartbeat is that they live closer to death. They suffer more heart attacks and aneurysms and raptures than any other creatures that are alive. It's expensive for them to fly because they burn out fast. Hummingbirds will fry like a machine, right? Uh, they fly like a machine, but they fry like a machine. Uh, you melt the engine. The biggest heart in the world is found inside the blue whale. You know, the heart of a blue whale versus the heart of a hummingbird. A hummingbird's heart weighs ounces, but the blue whale has a heart that weighs more than seven tons. Seven tons. It's as big as a room. It is a room with four major chambers. As a matter of fact, the chambers of these hearts of the blue whale is so big that a child could walk around in it head high bending only to stoop through the valves. The valves are as big as swinging doors in your home, in a bedroom. The house of a heart drives a creature 100 feet long. You know, every creature on the earth has approximately 2 billion hearts to spend in their lifetime. The hummingbird lives a very short time because he's beaten 10 times a second. A blue whale will live much longer because he has such a large heart that beats slower. But the hummingbird, the blue whale, and we as humans will have about 2 billion heartbeats in a lifetime. You can spend them slowly like a tortoise that can live to be 200 years old, or you can spend them fast like a hummingbird who will live to be 2 years old. I think the choice really is ours. You see, when we think about this subject of forgiveness, we battle guilt. Maybe today you're feeling guilt on this Friday broadcast. When it comes to our hurts, we have two options. We can either rehearse those hurts or we can release those hurts. Hey, we're really close to summertime, and I, and I love that the temperatures are finally warming up. And maybe this summer you'll be taking a vacation. A few years ago, my wife and I, as we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, uh, somebody asked me, well, what you going to do on your anniversary? Where you are heading? Well, we decided that we would take a trip to Mexico. And so we went to Cabos, which is off the California Baja. And uh, man, we had a great time. We really enjoyed uh, having a fun time, seeing new things and exploring a different culture. Now, how many of you have been on a trip? But maybe it wasn't a trip to Mexico, 
Maybe you've been on a guilt trip. Not so much fun, is it? Well, I want to talk to you today about how you can be released through guilt, through forgiveness. In order to give us this understanding, let's look at Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 27. The Bible says that great crowds trailed behind Jesus, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and he said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. Two others, both criminals, were being led out to be executed with him. Finally, they came to the place called the Skull. All three were crucified there. Jesus was on the center cross and the two criminals on the either side. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothing by throwing dice. As the crowd stood watching, the leaders laughed and scorned at Jesus. And they said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he really is God's chosen one, the Messiah. The soldiers mocked him too, and they offered him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it refers to the guilt and the guilt offering. And when we look at that, we see that the meaning of the guilt offering is that there's a difference between guilt and sin. The difference between guilt and sin is very important for us to remember. Whereas the word for sin focuses on the quality or the act of a personal failure. Sin is where I fail somebody or I fall short of the glory of God. And it's actually two separate words that are used for sin and guilt. Guilt, on the other hand, refers to suffering under the deception of somebody else. It's a broken relationship caused by sin. So sin is one thing, but then the guilt that comes when something breaks because of sin. In particular, it's this indebtedness that results. I feel guilty because I did a sin that caused something to break apart. Uh, Maybe you can relate it to like a broken relationship. Because of what I did, it caused this relationship to break apart. Now, not only do I experience sin, but I experience guilt. Maybe you're unfaithful to your spouse. You sinned by committing adultery. Now you feel guilty because it's broken up your marriage. You feel guilt over what that caused to somebody else. What do we usually do with guilt? Well, first of all, we tend to to just bury it, right? Psalm 32 is an example of that. Now, Psalm 32 is a powerful psalm. We're very familiar with Psalm 51, right? That is David's penitent psalm. That's where he's confessing his sin. He's asking the Lord to forgive him of the guilt of his sin. He's asking the Lord to restore the joy of his salvation. So Psalm 51 is actually answered in Psalm 32. So David gives Psalm 31, and and as we look at our Bible, a lot of times it's not listed chronologically, right? Uh, As we look at chapter headings, and even as we look at the order in which the Bible is placed, it's not often in chronological order. Psalm 51 actually came first before Psalm 32, but in our Bibles, the order is different. Psalm 51 is being answered here with what we usually do with guilt. We usually bury it. Psalm 32 says, when I refuse to confess my sin, David is speaking, I was weak, I was miserable, I groaned all the day long. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. He said, finally, I confess all my sins to you. I stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, 
and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. You know, David confessed that guilt in Psalm 51, and now he says, all my guilt is gone. You know, Luther one day, as uh, as he was reading the Psalms, was asked what his favorite Psalm was. And his answer was, Psalmi Paulini. When he his friends pressed on to, to ask what he was talking about, he says, well, I love the 32nd Psalm because it's the answer to Psalm 51, and I love the 130th Psalm, and I love the 143rd Psalm. And they all teach that forgiveness of our sins comes without the law and without works to the man who believes. And therefore, I call them the Pauline Psalms and the David Psalms because David sings, there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. This is just what Paul says, God hath reconciled us, and God has concluded that in all unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. And so Luther loved the Psalms and the writings of Paul because Paul reminded us that we should never boast in our own righteousness because we have been forgiven through the power of Jesus Christ. And so many times with our guilt, we tend to bury it. But Proverbs 28 says, you will never succeed in life if you try to hide your sins. As we look at Luke chapter 24, Jesus reminds us that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name. It's not meriting forgiveness. Christ's blood washes away our tears and forgives us of our sins. And God no longer brings back to remembrance these sins once they have been forgiven. You see, the Lord will will give you the opportunity to forget a sin when you confess it to him. He removes the guilt. No more shame, no more pain, no more remembrance of that sin. And I think that we have to realize that we've got to think differently. Once we bring that sin to a service and it is confessed, it's brought out into the open. Before we confess it, we try to hide it. And it seems like it keeps coming to the surface through guilt. But once we unbury it, once we confess it and bring it out into the open, God buries it. What we tend to do with guilt is just the opposite of what we should do with guilt. We tend to bury it, but we should confess it. There's something else that we do with guilt. Not only do we tend to bury it, but we tend to blame it. We go back to the story of Adam and Eve, right? Adam admitted, yes, I did partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then he says, what? It's the woman that you gave me. She brought me some and I ate it. Instead of dealing with his guilt, he says, well, it's her fault. It's a blame game. And then Eve blamed the serpent. And we have been blaming one another for our sins ever since. Proverbs 19.3 says, some people ruin themselves by their own stupid actions, and then they blame the Lord. Have you ever justified your faults by saying, at least I didn't do what they did and what so-and-so did, right? Like, that's a way of blaming, right? Yeah, I did it, but it's not as bad as what they did, right? Blaming somebody else for our sins. That will heap up the guilt. That doesn't release you from guilt. So we tend to bury it. We tend to blame it. And then the third thing is we tend to beat ourselves up. In Psalm 38, David says, My guilt has overwhelmed me. Like a load, it weighs me down because I was foolish. I am bent over. I am bowed down. I am sad all day long. You know, in the Hebrew Old Testament, there are 12 different words that define sin. And in the Greek New Testament, there's actually five different words that define sin. Together, they represent 
seven different categories of sin. Now, to fully appreciate God's unconditional and his agape love for us, I've got some really incredibly good news about the gospel. The truth is that in Christ, it is important that we first come to grips with these seven categories of sin, and then we can come to terms with the fact that we've been forgiven for all these different categories of sin. Let me give them to you quickly. Our total depravity, our total human depravity is manifested in seven major different ways. Number one, uh, the word for sin is a deliberate act against the law of God. Now, we see this in 1 John 3, 4. In the King James Version, it uses the word transgression, but the Greek word is lawlessness, in which we deliberately are choosing to live a life of sin. We deliberately do something that we know is sin. Anyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. It's a transgression. 1 John 3, 4, anyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So the first type of sin that we do is a deliberate act against God. We call that lawlessness. Number two would be a mental consent to a temptation. That's giving into our sinful desire. These are what we would call the sins that we have in our minds, like the sins of coveting. And uh, we give mental consent to temptation. Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 5, remember when he says, you have heard that it has been said that you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that anybody who looks after a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the act of adultery obviously is a sin, but to look after a woman lustfully, Jesus says that is also a sin. Now, obviously there's more involved when you actually commit adultery. Uh, Jesus is not saying, since you go ahead and thought about it, go ahead and do it. He's not saying that. He's saying you're guilty of a sin. Don't take it even further and deeper into that by bringing somebody else into your sinful behavior by inviting somebody to be involved in adultery, because then that sin has a ripple effect. So there's a sin of mental content. Uh, Number three is a sin of rejecting the Bible and the truth of the Bible. And we find this in Romans chapter 14, where it says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So this is where the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, places something upon our heart that we should not do something. And in this case, in Romans chapter 14, it's concerning eating meat. And in this case, there was meat that was offered to idols and And as a result, they could get it at a cheaper rate. And some Gentile believers had no problem whatsoever purchasing this meat. Jewish believers, however, said, we can't buy that meat. Doesn't matter if it's cheaper or not, because it's been offered and been used in idol worship. And so Paul says, if you have doubts, whether you should eat it or not, whether you should buy it or not, then don't do it. Because when you do do it, you're actually not operating on faith. You're operating from a matter of sin. Now, this is a matter of the conscience, I believe. I think that if our conscience tells us that we shouldn't do something, then we shouldn't do it. I find that this is very important for us as believers, right? I'll use a personal example. I personally believe, it's my personal conviction, that I should abstain from alcoholic beverages. And the reason I feel like I should not consume alcoholic beverages is because God has placed me in a unique position as a pastor and as a chaplain that I do a lot of work with people who battle alcoholism. And because of their battle with alcoholism, 
They cannot have a drop of alcohol because if they do, uh, they could possibly stumble back into the life of an alcoholic. And so because of that, I said, I, for the sake of my brother or my sister in Christ, I will not consume alcoholic beverages because I don't want them to stumble. I don't want them to look at me and say, well, Chaplin does it or the pastor does it. If he drinks, why can't I drink? I furthermore look at my children. I look at the fact that maybe dad can handle his drink, but what if my children can? I believe that there's some people that have a stronger disposition toward being addicted to alcohol. Some have a stronger uh, you know, tendency to be addicted to different things, right? And so to me, it's a simple matter of giving up my freedom for the sake of somebody else. And so here Paul is saying that if I have doubts about something and I feel I shouldn't do something, and if I do it, it is a sin. It's a rejection of a biblical truth. Well, number four, when the Bible talks about sin, it's talking about the neglect of my known duties or my responsibilities, okay? This is now talking about not a particular lifestyle, but a particular duty, right? Uh, For example, if I am paid to go to work and I fall asleep on the job, I am neglecting my duties. That is a sin. James put it this way in James 4, 17. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Many times people say, well, pastor, I think we ought to go help this person. And I'll say to them, listen, God has placed that upon your heart to do that. And if you don't do it, it is sin. Don't put that on somebody else to say, well, they ought to take care of that or the church ought to take care of that. If God has placed that upon your heart to do good for somebody, you ought to do it. And if you don't do it, it is sin. It's not sin for me not to do it because God hasn't placed it upon me. I'm not neglecting my duties. You're neglecting yours because you know the good that you ought to do and you're not doing it. Well, let's move on. Number five, there is also the word that is used for sin And it's talking about doing things out of ignorance. Now, as we think about doing something out of ignorance, you say, well, how can I be held accountable for something that I didn't know that I should do or shouldn't do? Well, Martin Luther King Jr. said this, nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. In other words, as human beings, okay? There are certain things that we should know. You know, one time I got pulled over, and uh, believe it or not, I was driving too fast. And I, I told the officer, I was very polite to the officer who pulled me over. I said, well, now, now listen, sir, um, I don't know what the speed limit is, and so I couldn't know what I should be driving because I was unaware of the speed limit. The officer said, well, ignorance of the law is no excuse for not upholding the law. And he says, as a person who is given the privilege of having a driver's license and driving on government-owned roads, you have a responsibility to know what the speed limit is. And I was not able to get out of that ticket, even though I didn't know what the speed limit was because I was breaking the law. In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, it says, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. In other words, direct disobedience is going to be resulting in a more severe punishment. But then it continues by saying, and this is Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with fewer blows. In other words, there's a less severe punishment 
but it doesn't get off the hook. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been trusted with much, more will be asked. So the fifth word that is used of this matter of sin is doing things out of ignorance. And then number six, another word that is used is talking about our sinful natures, the nature that we inherited from Adam. And this is found in several places in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 51 talks about it, and Psalm 58 talks about it. But perhaps the most popular place in the New Testament is found in Romans 3.23, where it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means all of us have a sinful nature, and all of us exercise that sinful nature by falling short of the glory of God. That is missing the mark. We cannot obtain perfection because we all have sinned. We all have a sinful nature. So we are held accountable for our sinful nature. And then number seven, the last word that is used when it comes to this matter of sin is really a principle. It is kind of dwelling within our sinful nature or constantly focusing on our sinful nature. This makes us a slave to sin. So therefore, we're commanded that we should be living a life of holiness. And as we look at this particular aspect of dwelling in our sinful nature, this is where guilt comes in. And I want to read to you a passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 7, and beginning at verse number 14. It says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So there's that word right there, a slave to sin. In other words, I have become stuck in sin. I become a slave to sin. And Paul says, I am so enslaved in this sinful nature, I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I don't do it, but what I hate to do, that I do. Paul says, you know, I kind of know what I should do, but this sinful nature keeps dragging me back to do the things that I hate that I do. Verse 16, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin living within me. In other words, sin has enslaved me so much, even though I want to do the right thing, my sinful nature that is dwelling within me prohibits me from doing the right thing. He continues by saying, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not, that I do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now, I know there's a lot of vocabulary there in what Paul is saying, and it can get kind of confusing, right? But basically, Paul is saying, there's a law that is working within me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? Then he says, verse number 25, Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we look at this last principle, the indwelling of our sinful nature, sometimes people say, well, I was born this way. And there is an element of truth on that. We sin because we are born in sin. 
We are trapped in our sin. We can't get out of it. So Paul concludes by saying, man, I'm a wretched man. Now, the difference between what Paul concludes here in Romans chapter 7 and what most people conclude is, Paul says, I can get out of it because of Jesus Christ. He will set me free. And I want you to know that he will set you free as well. So would you join me on the broadcast next week as I talk about what Jesus wants us to do with our guilt? He wants us to admit it. He wants us to accept responsibility. And he wants us to ask for forgiveness. That is how you are set free from guilt. George Mueller said, The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. When I ask God to forgive me, He releases me from my guilt, and He does it instantly. He does it completely. He fully sets me free as we are receiving forgiveness over and over again. We are set free from guilt over and over again. Well, I hope this will help you today. If I can help you with anything, please shoot me a text message, 252-267-2365. I hope that you will come and worship with us this weekend. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to speaking with you on Monday. God bless you. Have a great weekend. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.